I'm moving into a new territory tonight. I am uh, teaching off of my iPad, so I feel like I'm moving into a different world. I tried this when I went down a couple of weeks ago. I got to preach at the, the VA in uh, Waco, and I had changed my notes so much, and I didn't have any paper to print at home, so I thought, well, this is all I got. And it worked out okay, so now I'm going to keep trying and see how it goes. But, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Obadiah tonight, now that everybody knows where it's at in the Bible. And, uh, you know, she is right. I'm going to teach tonight and steward next week, and then I'm going to come back and finish this up in three weeks. And I appreciate Anthony teaching last week. we got a little teaching team going on, and uh, it looks easy probably to stand up here and do this and to shepherd God's word for God's people, but I can assure you it's not. <laughs> Uh, you know, you got a lot of things going on. You don't want to make sure you get anything wrong. You know, it doesn't feel great when people laugh at you. So you try to actually kind of know something about what you're talking about. But, uh, yeah, well, you do want them to laugh at the jokes, right? Because if they don't laugh, then you're in trouble. So I get some of that sometimes, too. I have jokes and just blank stares. But, you know, and I thought about it before in this little gap period before we start a, a, a new series in the fall on the book of Acts. Um, I was thinking about what to do, and I thought to myself, you know, I could really make it easy on me um, and just pick some kind of easy scripture that I know well and could easily teach and didn't have to do a lot of preparation. Um, or I could really kind of figure out something that, you know, was inspired by God through me. And I came up with this idea to teach these three books in a row. And, uh, you know, some probably haven't studied Obadiah a lot in your life, but what does uh, Paul tell us in 2 Timothy 3.16? He says that, that all scriptures what breathe out of the mouth of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And I love the last one, for training in righteousness. Teaches you to be more like Jesus. That's what that word righteousness is, right? Teaches us to be more like Jesus. So we can learn from all of scripture. And I love really what Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, 4, he says this, that the Old Testament, so that's what we're talking about tonight, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. And that sounds pretty good. Jared was talking about hope tonight, right? I don't know about you, but I could use in my life a little bit of encouragement and a whole lot of hope. So we're going to see that tonight, I think, in studying Obadiah. You know, another thing that we've talked about and you've heard me speak about a bunch in this class is that the entire Bible, all of the Bible, is really just one great story of God's love. And the unifying thread is Jesus Christ. It's like, that's why I asked Spencer in part to sing that song, He's Our Rock. Christ is our rock. And it reminded me, I saw this article uh, this past week, just reading through some things. And it was about a guy named Alan Swift. And Alan Swift died about 10 years ago. He was 105 years old. And he drove a 1928 Rolls Royce for 78 years. <clears throat> the same car. For 78 years, he held the record of the Guinness Book of World Records for the oldest living person to drive a car that he purchased new. He said that the day he died, they said that it still ran like a Swiss watch when he died. It just, just reminded me of Jesus for some reason. I guess you can see Jesus in anything, right? I, I can count on Jesus like he could count on that car even more. And Obadiah is really no exception to this. It points you to Jesus. 
In all of the Bible, they say, and you know, I've had uh, mentors of mine tell me that in every sermon you sh should find where it points you back to Christ, and you can always do that, and Obadiah is no exception. So Obadiah, uh, which the word Obadiah means servant, servant of God, of Yahweh, of I am. That's what Jared was also talking about. I love that song. You know, when I heard that and he's talking about I am, I was, you know, meaning to just kind of gloss over this point in my lesson. But I thought, you know, it's another great time to remind you of just the power of God in your life if you're a Christian. The great I am. I mean, sometimes I don't think we really think about that. And if you look at the words of that song, what does it say? That the mountains will shake, that the demons will flee. What else does it say? There's no power in hell that can stand before what? The power and the presence of the great I am. Amen. That lives inside of each and every one of us. If you're a Christian, that power lives inside of you. And literally the gates of hell shake. It's just the presence of God. So that's what his name means, is the servant of God, Yahweh, the great I am. We don't know a whole lot else about Obadiah, honestly. Um, this scripture, now that you know where it's at, we know that in writing this, he was basically writing a vision. It was a prophecy. And we know that because it tells us right there, verse 1, this is a vision, vision of Obadiah. Didn't have to struggle to figure this out. It's a vision, a prophecy, but it's really more of a story. And what it is, is it's a story of good versus evil. That's what Obadiah is about. It's a story of good versus evil. It's a story of really Satan at work. It's a story of, of the persecution of the church, of the Christian, of the people of God. It's a story about a battle also. A story about a battle against sin. It's a battle against evil. But it's also a story that has great hope. Hope and salvation, hope in Christ. It's also a story about two brothers. It's a story about Jacob and Esau. You guys know Jacob and Esau. Jacob later became Israel. You'll see that this story here in the, my title to the first part says, it's a story about two brothers, Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom. Edom was the Edomites. We've talked about that when we went through the book of Joshua. They're heirs to Esau, and they are really the Edomites, the object, if you will, of this vision. And like I said, you're probably familiar with the story of, of Jacob and Esau, uh, the grandsons of Abraham, uh, born of Rebekah, father Isaac. Uh, you'll remember that uh, Esau was the older brother, and in the womb, I don't know if you recall this, but God gave a prophecy to Rebekah in Genesis chapter 25. It says, two nations are in your womb. Those two nations, Edom and Israel, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And we know that after their birth, when they grew up, we know that Jacob, whose name meant trickster, right? He didn't start off really as kind of the godly one that would later become Israel. What did he do? He tricked, first of all, he, he bribed his, his brother, right? Uh, he bribed his brother, brother out of his birthright. And then he tricked him out of his blessing as well. And, you know, I look at Jacob and he's always a person to me that, you know, for myself, gives me great hope for someone to start out uh, on such a bad path and God used in such a mighty way. Uh, gave birth, obviously, to the nation of Israel, to the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And because of what Jacob did, uh, Esau hated him. 
You know, he really just hated him. And the Bible says that he actually wanted to kill him. And this hatred, we all know what hatred can do to you, right? It can just eat you up from inside. And it created a great bitterness in his, in his life. And he became very jealous of his brother. And it also then developed this great pride of I'm better than him. You know, he's, he's not as good as I am. So he hated him. And what happened um, is this then passed through to the Edomites. You know, his hatred became a part of the hatred of that country for Israel. And if you look through the Bible, there's lots of uh, examples of this hatred. Uh, when Moses was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, you remember when they came and they had the battle with the Amalekites? And I don't know if you remember, but this is the battle where uh, when uh, Moses stood up on the mountain, he took the rod of God and he held his, his hands up high. They were winning the battle, right? And every time he let them down, they would lose. And Aaron and her went up there and they held his arms up. Everybody knows the story, right? Well, the Amalekites, those were uh, descendants of Esau. They hated them. Another great example, and we talked about this briefly when we studied the book of Joshua. When they were going into the promised land, they had to go through, or they were, should have went through, the Edomite territory. So God told Moses, uh, go to, to Esau, to the Edomites, and say, let me through. And basically they said, no, you're not coming through. In fact, they said, listen, if you come through, I'm going to go out there with my army and our sword, and we're going to kill you. So they hated them. They hated them. And it wasn't a great example, obviously, of brotherly love. But it wasn't just a hatred toward uh, his brother and the nation of Israel. It actually became a hatred toward God. So he just, you know, he started turning to false gods and worshiping other gods and started uh, promoting sin and evil um, and just went away from, from Yahweh, from the, God, the, the only God, the great I am. And then we also see in here God's judgment for this behavior. We see his judgment against the Edomites. So it's also a vision, a story of this judgment of their doom, if you will. And it becomes a prophecy, a vision against, against sin and destroying that sin. Against those who stand against God, against those who stand against his people, against Israel. And if you notice in all kind of prophecy and vision, especially the Old Testament, it always has kind of a near term and a long term. So you can look at the near term in this vision and prophecy and talk about the doom and the demise of the Edomites, but you could also portray that forward to the day, to people that come against God. And in the end, you'll see that it's also, though, a story uh, of salvation and Christ, our Savior. So a lot's packed in uh, to this chapter, and uh, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a context because it's a tough chapter if you don't really know the backdrop of all that's going on. So I want to start now. I'm going to read the whole thing. And uh, then we're going to talk about it a little bit as we go and a little bit more after. So starting there, verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. It says, rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. And that her could be Eden, it could be sin, it's evil, it's Satan. We're going to battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, Eden, 
That's who he's talking about. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, and that's just a reference to where they live. They lived up in these, uh, the, the mountains and the rocks. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plungers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. You, you were so full of pride, now you'll be nothing. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Eden and understanding out of Mount Esau? Oh, your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. And Jerry talked about that a little bit tonight, that cut off. You'll be without hope. You'll be without hope. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame, grief is what he's talking about, shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, so what they're talking about there is to the loop. They just stood by and watched what was taking place. Most scholars believe that this book was written sometime around the time that the Babylonians were taking the Israelites into captivity. And remember, they came and destroyed the temple that Solomon had, had talked about. In fact, that's the next couple of verses where he says, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth. Probably what he's talking about there is Solomon's wealth. And foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. That's what they said. You were like one of them. And why were you like one of them? Because you were just standing by letting this happen. You were just standing by letting this happen. And, you know, it reminded me of James in the New Testament. In James chapter 4, he says, The one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it is sinning. Let me read it again. The one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it is sinning. And I think that probably my good friend and mentor, Dr. Stephen Smith, when he was preaching this past weekend, I think he was probably thinking about this verse when he said, Christians, do not be guilty of the sin of silence. You've heard a lot about that probably this week, haven't you? The sin of silence, standing by, not, not taking action when you know something's wrong. They stood aloof. Something for us to think about today, isn't it? And I'll tell you also something else. Just, I don't mean this to be, I don't want this to be about this week. There'll be enough said about that. But I'll tell you also that um, when somebody's coming against your beliefs, you know, it made my stomach hurt to see what I saw in the Nazi flags and this craziness. When somebody's coming against your beliefs, I want to tell you also, though, that's the hardest time, the hardest time to be Christ-like, isn't it? It's just the hard. It's the hardest time to be Christ-like. But I'll tell you also, though, it's the greatest opportunity to be a witness for Christ. The greatest opportunity to be a witness for Christ. And you know why I know that? Because the day that is the basis of our faith, 
the day that Christ went to that cross, what was he doing? Enduring the same thing, people that just came against him because of what he believed. And he endured it with humility and grace and strength and courage. Listen, if Jesus is our unifying thread, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. And that's what we got to focus on is Christ. So I'll keep going. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people and in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Man, is there anything worse? Erased from memory. Erased from memory. There's some that believe that that's already, this prophecy has already come true, that the Edomites have been erased from history. There's others that believe that they still dwell in parts of the Middle East and will be erased from history. But, here's some good part, the good news starts coming. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. That Mount Zion there, that was the city of God, the city of David in the Old Testament. It's almost always referring to Israel. But in the New Testament, when you see that, it's almost always referring to our heavenly Jerusalem. If you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it's going to say, I, I didn't come to Mount Sinai. I didn't come to where the law was delivered. I came to Mount Zion, to, to the city of the living God, my heavenly Jerusalem. So that's what he's talking about here. He's, he's saying, okay, now's, now's the time for victory. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble, like waste. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those in the Gib shall possess Mount Esau, Megib means to the south, so he's starting to he's starting to talk again about the uh, the promised land that they've lost since Joshua conquered it. And those of uh, Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, which is along the border of the of the ocean there. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess uh, Gilead, which is to the east. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as uh, Zarephath, which is up north. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in uh, Sepharad shall possess the cities of Negev, which is down in the south. And saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. He's talking about the second coming there. He's talking about one day all this is going to be taken care of once and for all when Jesus comes back and he rules forever. No, nobody really knows the timing necessarily of these events, and it's really not even what he's talking about. But what he's doing is he's giving God's people hope. 
This is where their hope is coming from. Hope in Christ and his second coming and one day. Still talking about it in Obadiah. That's why it's so beautiful. And that's why, you know, it's confusing when some people will just ignore the Old Testament. We learn so much. Even there you can see Obadiah talking about that day when God's going to come back and reign forever. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? Talking about hope. It's a lot packed into this book, you know, and every time I study any part of the Bible, I always try to figure out for myself, what can I learn from this? What is it that I can apply and learn today? And additionally for this one, since it was a promise of Scripture, where is the hope? Paul says there's always hope. There's encouragement. We get hope through the Old Testament. So what can we learn and where is the hope? Well, I normally give you my title up front of a lesson, but I'm going to give it closer to the end here. And it was the rock of my salvation. And the reason it was the rock of my salvation, and I chose this title because this entire book reminds me really of Jesus' words in Matthew 7. Uh, You remember when in Matthew 7, I've used this when uh, I perform wedding ceremonies, I've always used and quoted this verse. And in chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, I'll just read it to you. It says, everyone uh, then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall. I mean, it's pretty easy to see who was doing the building on the sand in this story, right? Esau. And what a great and mighty fall. In fact, his entire uh, family and, and his legacy going forward to be removed from existence won't even be a thought. Won't even remember them. And why? Because he was filled with hate. You know, he chose to worship other gods, to disobey the one true God, to follow this life of sin and abandon uh, God and all that he stood for. Sand. He even, if you really study deep, even not only stood aloof, he attacked uh, the Israelites. But Jacob, on the other hand, we know he wasn't perfect, right? He made a lot of mistakes. A lot of mistakes. But if you really study Jacob in Scripture, he was always following God, always really loving God and trusting God tried to obey him. He had his moments, that's for sure. But what really stands out about Jacob to me is that he pursued God, and you know what? God pursued him. And I love that. He pursued God, and God pursued him. He built his house on the rock. That's what Jacob did. And he, uh, and, and because of that, because he built his on the rock, that when bad things came his way, he was able to withstand it. So I think there's two things that we can learn from this. One, don't be like Esau, right? That's an easy one. That should be, without saying, don't be like Esau. And what I think is so incredible about this is it really does just give us a good description of sin, doesn't it? I mean, there may be times when sin is good and it feels good and you're enjoying it. He talks about here that though you soar aloft like the eagle, your nest is up in the stars. I mean, there may be a season, right, where it's good. You're having fun in sin, but man, let me tell you, there's always a price. Amen? There's always a price for sin. And Satan spends every moment trying to collect on that price. 
His intent is to destroy you. And when that sand gives way, I'm going to tell you, if you built it on sand, you don't have God in your life, you're not going to survive. The other thing about sin, that if you follow Esau's life, you'll know that sin just becomes greater. You know, one sin leads to another sin, to another sin, and somehow they you get really kind of where you don't really think about the small sins and then they become bigger and they become bigger and they become bigger. It always happens that way. And I want to tell you the other thing about sin, another bad thing about sin, is it never, ever, ever just impacts you. It never just impacts you, even if you think so. I promise you, even if it's if that's that sin that, that you think nobody else knows about, I promise you, it's eating inside of you, it's changing your heart. Okay, it's bringing Satan into your life and it's impacting your relationships, your job, your marriage, everything. It never impacts just you. And if there is no better example than Esau, you know, hate, bitterness, jealousy, pride ate him up inside, impacted an entire nation of Edom. An entire nation spreads quickly, gets out of control, doesn't it? You see it all the time all the time. And you know, it's funny too, I think about this too also when I was studying this. It's interesting to me, you remember after Jacob wrestled with God and he, his name was changed to Israel, there's a moment there where Esau and Jacob come together. Remember this, this encounter? And Jacob is afraid that Esau is going to come kill him. You know, if you go back and read that account, you'll see that, that they embrace and it says that Esau runs to him and falls on the ground and hugs him and kisses him and starts crying. I mean, it's almost like there was a moment there where, you know, he was, there was some forgiveness going on and some repenting, some humility. I, you know, I don't know, because after that encounter, you never really read anything else about Esau. So I was trying to figure this out in my mind, thinking about this and just, okay, what, what happened during this moment? And what really uh, came upon me was just this, that, you know, listen, God is a redeeming God, but you can't always take it back. You know, the wheels of sin, when put in motion, sometimes it just spreads and creates damage that as much as you want to, as much as you want to, you can't take it back. You know, so when I have people that I have this discussion with about grace and where does grace fall in, is there too much grace? And, hey, I can go sinning because I can just ask God to forgive me and I've got my card, I can make it to heaven. I wanted to say, what are you thinking? Are you kidding me? Do you know the damage of sin? I mean, okay, let's just assume for a second that you do have the card and you're going to go to heaven. Do you really understand the damage that can be done to your life and to your family and your relationships by sin? It destroys. It destroys. You can't take it back. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but man, be careful. Be careful. Number two, those of us building on the rock Here's the good news. We win in the end. We win in the end. And he, he lays it out for us there in these verses. I just love it. There's a few things that I'll mention to you. He talks about there in 17. He says, the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. That last word there, possessions, really means inheritance. We get that same promise, don't we? Inheritance of God. I have a slide that Spencer put together for me here. I, I, I just wanted to come up with a few things that I was thinking of, of. What does this mean? What is our inheritance of God? Just some scripture and some words that I think are encouraging, like the presence of God. It's part of our inheritance. We get the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. I am with you always to the end of the age, which is what Matthew 28, 20 says. Or what about the authority? The authority of God. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. We get the authority of God. We get the protection of God. Isaiah 41 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will strengthen you and help you. With the protection of God, the provision of God. Jared talked about it tonight. And the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And we get the power of God. The power of God. Acts 1 you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And best of all, we get salvation. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. It's our inheritance. Great promises of scripture and from God. And if that isn't enough, we also get the promise here that good will always overcome evil. What does he say there? He says, the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivors. It's a great promise, like a consuming fire. The promise that light will never, it will, it will always overcome darkness. The darkness will ever, never overcome the light. And also, we get to inherit the promised land. We talked about this. Remember when we studied Joshua, how this applies to us as New Testament Christians? It wasn't a physical place. What was the promise, promised land in, in the Old Testament representative of? They went there what? To dwell with their God. The promised land for us is what we get to do every single day as Christians, dwell with Christ and dwell with God. Lives inside of us. That's our promised land. We get to do that. We get to walk with Jesus every day. And best of all, we win in the end. That's what he tells us. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. We have eternal hope. There's no better hope than that. We have eternal hope. You know, and... Interesting thing, too, when you study the whole of the Bible and you look back in some of these Old Testament, you know, some of them are pretty tough, right, in terms of just, you know, even what Ezekiel that Jared was reading tonight. And this whole book reminded me of what Solomon said is that uh, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Because if you think about it, you know, the world today feels a little like this world back then. I mean, it does to me. I mean, you've got hostility like crazy toward God's people and persecution of the church everywhere. You've certainly got, you know, a battle going on of good versus evil. I mean, you cannot watch TV or read a paper or be alive today and not see the, the battle that's taking place. You know, a spiritual battle, the Bible tells us, that's, that's coming at us in live and in color, Right? You know, nothing new about this. Had the same thing happening there. And, you know, I've heard a lot this week also about history. Well, let me tell you, the, only, the one thing this history is going to show you over and over again is that none of this is going to change until Jesus comes back. It's just going to keep happening. It's going to keep happening. But, you know, the other thing about it is that the nothing new under the sun is that it also reminds me that there's absolutely no reason to worry. There's absolutely no reason to worry. And I've said this before as an example, and it's such a good one. I always use it. It's like, uh, you know, I'm a big Auburn football fan, and it's coming up. And I always tell you, since I am here every Saturday, starting at about 3 o'clock, I never get to watch the games, but I record them. And that's the, I found to be the best way in the world to watch football. Because it kills William, but I always find out the score before I get home. And if it, they lose, very easy. I just gained four hours of my life back. But if they win, 
Let me tell you, it's a lot of fun to watch the game when they know they, that they won. It takes all the stress off. It's so peaceful. I mean, the freedom, like I know, like if they have a fumble or they're down by 20, I'm like, that's fine. I know they come back and win. <laughs> I just get to see all the good touchdowns that are coming up. Well, I mean, that's really the way our life is, isn't it, as Christians? I mean, that's really the way we should live. I mean, because we know that we win in the end. We don't have to live a life that's afraid of the outcome. We don't have to live a life of, of fear and of misery and expecting the worst. I mean, that's really not how God designed us. It's not what he intended for your life. He intended for you to have eternal hope. Eternal hope because we know we know who wins. We win in the end. It's like that song that uh, Spencer just sang. It says, when those waves start crashing and all the ground around you starts moving, what does it say? It says, we are hidden safe in the God who never moves. The God who never moves, no matter what's going on around us. Because let me tell you, you could look on the TV and you could, you could really get kind of frightened by the the world. I mean, just in a couple of days, just terrorism and hate. You can start living afraid of life. You can start living in fear. You can start letting hatred boil up inside of you and anger, bitterness. I mean, you really could. Pick a side. You could get mad about it. Won't do any good, right? Because sin we know destroys. It's just going to destroy you. And it's not the way God intended you for you to live. He intended for you to live with hope. We win in the end. So no matter what you're going through, I mean, we're going through all kinds of misery. I mean, the Israelites were being persecuted and killed and held captive. I mean, their life was not going great. But you can never let your circumstance define you. You can never let what's going on around you define who you are, how you, how you live, how you act, how you believe. Because you, if you're a Christian, are a victorious child of God. Victorious child of God. I want to end by reading this, this story that I have, if I can find it here. I came across this article that talked about a Catholic priest named Maximilian Kolbe. And he was executed by the Nazis. It seemed kind of applicable for this week. Father Kolbe was a Polish priest uh, sent by the Nazis to uh, Auschwitz. In July of 1941, a man escaped from their barracks. As punishment, 10 prisoners were chosen to die in the starvation bunker. They would receive no food or water. Their throats would turn to paper, their brains to fire, until finally their suffering ended in a horrible death. One of the ten began grieving loudly for his wife and children. Suddenly there was a commotion in the ranks. A prisoner had broken out of line calling for the commander, which was a cause for execution. The prisoners gasped. It was their beloved father, Colby. The priest who had shared his last crust of bread, who comforted the dying, who heard their confessions and fed their souls. The frail priest spoke softly and calmly to the Nazi camp commander. He said, I would like to die in place of one of the men you condemned. He pointed to the weeping prisoner grieving for his wife and children. The commander compared the two. The priest indeed looked weaker than the man 
uh, he had condemned to death. He looked at his assistant and nodded. Father Colby's place on the death ledger was set. The men were made to remove their clothes and herded in to a dark windowless cell. One of the men sneered and said, you will dry up like tulips. Then he swung the heavy door shut. As the hours and days passed, the camp became aware of something extraordinary happening in the death cell. Past prisoners had spent their days dying, screaming, attacking each other, clawing at the walls. But now, coming from the death box, they heard the faint sounds of singing. On August 14, 1941, there were four prisoners still alive in the bunker, and it was needed for new occupants. So in the light of their flashlight, the Nazi soldiers saw Father Maximilian Kolbe, a living skeleton, propped up against one wall. His head was inclined a bit to the left. He had a smile on his lips, his eyes wide open, fixed on some faraway vision. And still today, visitors go to this starvation bunker and find on its floor, next to a large spray of fresh flowers, a steady flame. It still burns today, and it will burn forever. What a great, great reminder that the darkness will never, ever overcome the light. So what are we supposed to do? Just keep shining our lights into the world, right? Keep hoping. And maybe... Like Father Colby, just keep singing, no matter what. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray for us. <laughs> Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the way you love us. Father, thank you that we always have hope in Christ. Father, I just pray for our world. God, I pray for Jesus to come into this world, into this darkness. And, Lord, we know the only way for that to happen is through God's people. So I pray, Lord, that we would not stand in silence. But, Lord, I pray that with the humility, with the grace, with the mercy, with the power, and with the strength of Christ, I pray that we would go in. Lord, and administer your love. Lord, that we would administer your love because we know, God, that no amount of arguing, no amount of fighting, no amount of condemning and hate, none of that is ever going to help. But the only thing that's going to help is the love of Jesus. So, God, I pray, Lord, that even in this room, Lord, that you would raise up your soldiers to go out and do battle, to go out and do battle against sin. It's a sin problem. That's what we have is a sin problem. So, God, I pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness and courage. Let us be mighty warriors of God, fighting the fight of good versus evil. Lord, protect us in this battle. God, may your your blessings, your protection, maybe your healing will be with us. Your scripture promises that you will be with us always to the end of this world. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. In Jesus' name.